with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. In today's show, we'll talk about China's innovation development in the past 10 years. What are the main drivers of it? And the IMF also lowers global growth forecast for the next year. And now let's begin with our top story. According to the World Intellectual Property Organization, China rose to the 11th on the Global Innovation Index 2022. A decade ago, China ranked 34th, but now is on track to enter the top 10. Chinese officials say the country's intellectual property development reached a new level over the past decade, with more patents, improved services, and greater recognition around the world. Our Huang Yue has the details. Over the past 10 years, China has approved nearly 4 million invention patents, with an annual growth of about 13 percent. The processing time for the examination of invention patents has been shortened to about 16 months. So far, the valid invention patents are mainly held by leading high-tech enterprises in China. As of July this year, China has over 150,000 high-tech companies, with over 1 million valid invention patents. According to the World Intellectual Property Organization, China rose to the 11th on Global Innovation Index 2022. A decade ago, China ranked 34th, but now is on track to enter the top 10. Officials say this is a result of unremitting efforts in the past 10 years. China ranked first in nine subdivision indicators this year, including market size, number of patents, and growth of labor output. Over the past decade, China has attached great importance to intellectual property rights. The research and development spending has increased. The average ownership of invention patents has grown from 3.2 per 10,000 people in 2012 to over 19 per 10,000 people in 2021. Officials say the improved services and strengthened protection has made China's business environment attractive to more countries. In recent years, China has received an increasing number of patent applications from the Belt and Road countries, and the China-EU agreement on geographical indications has recognized over 200 prized foods from both sides. Huang Yue, CGTN, Beijing. So, for more on this, join us on the line now, are Dr. Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Ina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. So, first, Ina, according to the Global Innovation Index rankings, China's ranking has actually improved from 34th in the year 2012 to 11th in the year 2022. So, how would you explain this growth? Does this mean that China is an innovation-driven economy now? Oh, definitely. I mean,、uh, China has had the most complete game plan in terms of、uh, charting out、uh, what it was intended to do.、Uh, the 14th five-year plan laid out a, a whole series of goals、uh, back in 2020.、Uh, what was to be achieved in 2025, and it really is upping it now. You know, it's a little deceptive when you hear that、uh, China is the 11th. Actually,、uh, in terms of、uh, spending and digital economy, China is number two, just behind the U.S. at、uh, 7.1 trillion. 
trillion dollars. So, um, you know, the digital ranking uh, considers a lot of things. Um, but if you start looking at countries plan to plan what they've achieved, I think actually China should be ranked quite a bit higher. Mm. And then, so what do you think are the driving forces for the China's innovation in recent years? Uh, in recent years, the biggest driver would be the state-backed funds and also a huge effort to cultivate the local, local champions. Uh, we have seen that uh, the industrial infrastructure has been improved significantly. Um, there are a lot of new companies, not just in coastal cities, but also in the inland cities on industrial software, smart manufacturing, data security and cloud computing. Uh, very few investors in Silicon Valley will have heard of smaller companies like Sanfer or Supcon, but they are starting to be a uh, emerging power to develop the new technology in uh, the latest era. Mm. And so, Aina, how do you evaluate China's efforts on innovation and IPR protection in the past few years? There's two different narratives. If you look at what is being said uh, in side of China. It's always about uh, China's stealing intellectual property. Uh, th this is uh, really incorrect. Uh, it it's just another baseless accusation. If you start looking at China's legal system and the advances that they've made over the last 10 years to protect intellectual property, you'll see that uh, China's made enormous steps. In fact, now I would dare say that if you talk to intellectual property uh, lawyers, they'll tell you you're better off registering and defending your intellectual property in China in the U.S. because of the legal hurdles. In the U.S., you could be tied up for 10, 20 years if you have somebody who's willing to spend uh, legally. In China, it's going to be less than two years. So uh, it, it's a real uh, big difference. There's a gap in an understanding of exactly what China does and how it protects its things. But, um, you know, increasingly, the people on the inside understand the situation. Mm -hmm. And then so China's economy is taking the innovation uh, road to high quality development. And after a constant efforts to push forward the innovation driven development, China has made visible uh, progress, industrial upgrading with the new growth drivers emerging and new business forms flourishing. So could you give us some specific examples on that? Uh, from the industry we are in and we're focusing in recent years, and the digital factories has been a major uh, new trend um, because it will directly affect not just the output, but uh, the standard and quality of the output, as well as improving varieties of products. Uh, we have seen companies like Media, uh, which specialize in uh, consumer electronics, uh, utilizing the smart uh, manufacturing equipment, mostly actually produced in China, to improve their product. Uh, when it comes to uh, smaller uh, household electronics, the input sometimes can be doubled uh, within a year after they utilize this new digital uh, or automation process in manufacturing. Mm. And when it comes to robotics, we have seen a huge increase in collaboration between domestic companies uh, and Korean companies and Japanese companies. Uh, when it comes to, say, uh, the pharmaceutical and bioengineering, uh, we have noticed that in cities like Guangzhou and Shenzhen, it's not just manufacturing, but also logistics and a warehouse are all using this new uh, robotic-based 
um, uh, management technique to improve uh, their automation. Mm. So Aina actually then mentioned robotics, and I have to mention the AI because robotics with AI is very very efficient. So how is it important, you know, the robotics with AI to a country's uh, productivity level, the economy, and the security in today's world? Well, it's it's one of the primary drivers from the private side, and and you know you look at the world today; it's beset by inflation. Uh, there are uh, issues about uh, power and things like that. And you look within China, uh, even before all of this was happening, you had companies like Huawei, ZTE, all of these uh, companies talking about going towards this digital economy, Web 3.0. Why efficiency? If you can create things uh, with less energy, uh, with less cost factors, uh, and consume fewer materials, you're going to be much more efficient. And it's not just the efficiency for efficiency's sake; it makes you more competitive. So, you know, at the same time that the world is experiencing this, China is is moving its factory base towards the most efficient, uh, you know, uh, uh, manufacturing that they can do. And this is very important price, and it also goes to China's competitive. So, you know, as people who are looking at China should be looking at where the efficiencies are happening, where are the opportunities where uh, Web 3.0 and automation, the digital economy, are going to yield uh, tangible gains. And what I mean by that through efficiencies.、Mm. And then, so both you and Ina mentioned the digital economy. So, to what can we attribute China's rapid growth in this area in the、uh, development of the digital economy? And、um, China's growth, if we look at the macro picture, still largely depends on the consumer economy. Um, because before COVID, it was about sixty percent of GDP growth directly coming from the consumer sector. Uh, after COVID, it was on average in 2020 and 2021 about 30 percent. But this year, this number has increased above to 50 percent again.、Um, and much of those growth in the consumer sector was indirectly powered by the digitalization、uh, in the processing of producing consumer goods and in its transaction. Uh, when we look at what is growing the most、uh, rapidly in China's economy, e-commerce is a key component of that, and it won't be、uh, real. It won't、uh, be achievable if there is no smartphone-based、uh, payment system. And we have seen also significant increase in capital、uh, in terms of driving up、uh, the investment. Of hard technology instead of the relatively soft technology in the consumer sector, and when those technology are employed, we see great efficiency improvement for companies like JD.com or Alibaba in their production and delivery.、Mm-hmm. And what promising market trends can be identified for China's,、uh, you know, digital economy in the coming years? Then, how do you see the potential of 5G in the Chinese market? Uh, well, these are two separate topics, and when it comes to the industrial trend,、uh, we actually notice some、uh, quite different formats in the past three years.、Uh, one notable、uh, difference is that、uh, there are a lot of new investment in、uh, the emerging industries like new materials, new energy, and a lot of those investment don't don't just happen in the coastal regions. But increasingly moving to the capital cities for poorer provinces in central and western China, 
And along with that, there is a inward migration or the reverse migration. Um, the trend has become more significant since late 2021. Uh, we have seen a rise in inland cities such as Wuhan and Changsha. Um, those local government has provided uh, huge incentives in land provision and tax breaks. Uh, we have also seen under the Little Giants uh, campaign program, there are thousands of new innovation companies uh, specializing in uh, big data, in robotics. So the effort now is just is not just to build big globally competitive companies like Huawei, but also to nurture a bunch of smaller companies that would specialize in all varieties of the emerging technologies. Mm. And so, Aina, when we talk about the digital economy in China, we have to mention that China has created the digital renminbi, the first uh, digital currency issued by a major economy. So how has it faring so far? And what benefits does it have over the traditional currencies and the mobile payment platforms? Well, it's it's still in beta testing. It was rolled out in 2019 in 23 cities. They've done 100 billion yuan in total transactions and over 100 billion um, in, in yuan transactions and over 100 billion total transactions. So they're still trying to prove it. That's the beginning stage. What does it all mean? Well, on an international basis, it forms the ability to greatly reduce the costs of transactions, uh, especially between uh, countries outside of China, developing uh, or uh, emerging economies who want to trade goods. They no longer will have to go through uh, the dollar. There are uh, already uh, clearing banks uh, in Europe, uh, four in Europe, uh, I'm sorry, five in Europe, and a couple in the Middle East, including UAE. So, you know, you're starting to see an infrastructure grow that will greatly lessen the cost of doing business. Now, that is good for China. Why? Because if China implements it, once again, Chinese goods are going to be less uh, expensive and therefore more competitive. And there are a lot of uh, benefits also to those outside the system. I mean, Africa and the Middle East are particularly interested in Africa because they can they can uh, jump over all of these legacy systems, which are actually an impediment in the West because a lot of these companies are clinging on and trying to work uh, their initial investments as hard as they can and extract as much value. But that, of course, means that they are delaying implementation of the new technologies, which makes the economies less competitive. So Africa sees that as an opportunity. The Middle East sees this as an opportunity to be a financial hub to uh, take on areas like London and and New York and the traditional capitals by being a center for Africa, the Middle East, and also uh, Central Asia. Mm. And then, so when we talk about uh, technology innovation, we have to mention the intelligent manufacturing, which is uh, including new energy vehicle and solar panel industries. So why do you think, you know, these two industries develop so rapidly in China and China can take the lead on those uh, areas globally? Uh, just like what we said before, uh, Roma, Rome uh, wasn't built in a day. It was accumulation of capital, uh, tax support, talents accumulation in the past 20 years that made this possible. Previously, such kind of high-tech uh, investment was mostly nurtured by global VCs and PE funds. But now in the Chinese contest, it's mostly a state capital along with the large private firms. 
And during this process, we've seen some of the tech giants um, being built up, and some are very dominant in the global market already, especially when it comes to the upper and midstream of the supply chain, when it comes to battery production in particular. And when it comes to uh, the talent, uh, culture, talent nurturing, it's not just uh, the cultivation of the local talent. Uh, we have also seen this active effort of China trying to employ uh, talents from overseas market quite aggressively in the past 10 years. And all those factors together, uh, can, uh, then we can see this rapid improvement in those areas. Mm, so, Aina, so what's your impressions on the development of these two areas or sectors here in China in recent years, the new energy vehicle and solar panel industries? Well, uh, China is is uh, unique in the world in the sense that it has benefit from economies of scale. If you look at almost any industry uh, where you can garner benefits from, you know, producing in large amounts, it's based in China. So, eighty percent of the components for uh, solar are made here. Uh, uh, over, I think it's fifty to sixty percent of all the components that go into electric cars uh, are made in China. So, it's it's not just finished products; it's intermediate goods as we. Have talked about before. So China is in the sweet spot. And as it continues to drive costs down, both in terms of transactions, where we talk about digital uh, yuan and things like that, and efficiency in terms of manufacturing, uh, you know, digital uh, digitalization of the uh, supply, I mean, the manufacturing sector and also logistics, it continues to make China more and more competitive. China will take up a larger share of supplying the world simply because it's more efficient and cost-effective. So, Dan, when we discuss the science and technology innovation, there are different players in it, the universities, research institute, enterprises, etc., etc. So what do you think is the role of enterprises? They are more market-driven, so it seems that uh, commercialization is a key word here, right? Uh, absolutely. Um, it companies are uh, the pillar of this uh, innovation-driven economy transition. Uh, and among those companies, some are in the front line, uh, like a lot of our clients are in manufacturing in coastal regions. And they not only employ the latest technology, they are also the experimental uh, experiment field uh, when it comes to adopting uh, some of the cutting-edge technology that may or may not work. Uh, but since they have uh, accumulated um long-term experience and is able to tolerate, uh, tolerate a short period of loss, they can employ such experiments. And then um, there are also the financial institutions, including commercial banks like us. Uh, we work more like an enabler in this process. Uh, a lot of the new bank loans are directly directed to help those uh, companies that are trying to go through automation or want to increase uh, their green technology or some of the new technologies that's uh, yet to be proved efficient uh, in the industry. And they will get favorable rates when it comes to new loans. And these are quite effective when we want to uh, promote a certain type of technology and in especially AI and big data processing. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And after a short break, we'll take a look at the global economy. Stay with us. Welcome. I'm Ilaf Elard. 
economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. You are listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. The International Monetary Fund has maintained its forecast for global economic growth at 3.2% for this year, but lowered its projection for next year. The IMF said as the world feels the effects of the Ukraine conflict and high inflation, one-third of the global economy is supposed to suffer from contraction this or next year. It also cut the global growth forecast for next year to 2.7%, a 0.2 percentage point lower than its July forecast. So then, first of all, the IMF says the global growth is expected to slow further next year. How do you see this forecast? And are we going into a recession? Uh, well, this forecast is largely anticipated in the industry because of the worry of persistent inflation that may not just uh, be there in 2023, but might last even longer. Then given that expectation, uh, there will be further tightening in monetary policy, not just in the U.S., but also in the European market. Then the emerging market debt crisis might become a reality. So it is highly likely that we will enter into a recession in 2023. Uh, the question is, uh, how, is just how severe this recession will be. So, Aina, so what exactly are causing the economic situation globally to today? There are a number of factors that are, are contributing to this downward spiral. On, on one hand, you have you know uh, this long simmering tech and, and trade war that the U.S. Uh, started under Donald Trump. Then you have the situation uh, with the pandemic that it's you know, exacerbated the huge loans uh, that were taken out, uh, debt that has been piling up, uh, the stimulus program, which uh, you know basically stimulated demand, especially in the United States, uh, and then you have uh, the supply side inflation, uh, which has been you know, exacerbated by the situation in Ukraine. And now you have uh, this kind of monetary inflation, which is being pushed by the Fed as they try to drive up rates to tame inflation in the U.S. They're exporting in inflation all around the world as central banks are scrambling to keep up so that their currencies aren't devalued. So as that continues, you're going to see a downward spiral. I, I believe that we are in recession now. And the question is not recession, but a depression. Mm. And so then apart from the pandemic and Ukraine conflict, what are other factors that weaken the global economy, do you think? Uh, one of the fundamental reasons why we are in today's situation is the overly expensive monetary policy after COVID, uh, mostly adopted by the Federal Reserve, but also in the European market. And we have seen the cost of such policy. Mm. And so, Aina, developing nations are more vulnerable in the face of the economic crisis, as IMF chief economist warns about uh, the need to move more quickly on resolving the mounting debt problems faced by emerging market economies. So what could developing nations face under the debt problems? With the pandemic, uh, with the rise in inflation, they can't buy f food or fuel. 
Uh, you see Sri Lanka, you see a number of other countries uh, obviously undergoing that, Afghanistan. You can just go on. You know, people don't know what to do, especially businesses. That's going to affect the future. And you're seeing a dearth of leadership on the uh, on the developed nation side as they just continue to be preoccupied with their own problems, not realizing that the economic pyramid that they sit on top is about to collapse. Mm. And so, Dan, so what do you think a strong U.S. dollar mean to the developing nations? A strong U.S. dollar is bad news for emerging uh, markets and for less developed nations. And now it looks like some countries, uh, especially countries like Brazil and China, are doing well in defending their currency value. But smaller economies, uh, especially the ones in uh, Central Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, including the Sri Lanka, uh, do not have enough foreign reserves to defend the value of their currency. When we anticipate more rate hikes in the future by the Federal Reserve, uh, there is a high chance we might see a capital flight from those countries uh, rushing to uh, dollar-denominated assets. So as a result, we will see some sort of currency crisis, maybe not to the scale of 1997 uh, Asian financial crisis, but it could be similar and uh, being unfolded in a different format. Um, just as we see that uh, the latest Nobel Prize winner shared by three uh, U.S. economists, including the former chairman of uh, the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, their research is on bank runs and bank failures. And bank failure this year is a real possibility, uh, and especially for those emerging markets. And so, Ina, globally, actually, the U.S. Federal Reserve hiked the interest rate very aggressively so far this year, and a lot of other central banks follow suit, for example, the Bank of England. And the ECB is also expected to raise the interest rate, you know, again later this month by another 75 basis points. So how do you look at all these moves? Is that, you know, the interest rate hikes a right remedy for today's economic problem or the high inflation issue? Uh, no, it isn't. It, the Fed thinks that by acting selfishly and raising rates uh, to address a problem that they can't address, uh, raising rates does not increase the amount of corn or wheat you have. It does not cre increase the amount of oil you have. It can depress demand for energy because uh, companies aren't producing. But that means that you know people are going to go hungry. They're going to be cold. They're not going to have jobs. And that affects the overall economy. So they're depressing the economy, hoping that they can reinflate it later. It just doesn't make any sense. In the end, they're now exporting America's problems to the rest of the world. Well, we're speaking with Ina Tangen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute, and also Wang Dan, chief economist of Hansen Bank China. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.